is our children learning? You didn't build that. Because you'd be in jail. All men and women created by the goal, you know the, you know the thing. Those are the leaders of the past, but here at Gen Z GOP, we are looking to the future. Join us as we discuss how we can create a party that is worthy of our generation. Please clap. Welcome back, everybody, to Season 2, Episode 6 of the Gen Z GOP Podcast. This is your host, John Olds. I'm alongside my co-host, Carter Morgan. L is dealing with a bit of a technical difficulty tonight as the power has gone out. So I guess she just can't win. You know, if there isn't a gas shortage, there's an electrical shortage. But without further ado, I want to introduce our guest for this evening, my my good friend and senior advisor here at Gen Z GOP, Sam Ledoux. And Sam has a wealth of experience in Republican politics, particularly on the campaign side. And I think he will be able to give us a lot of really interesting and valuable insights into his experiences on the campaign trail. So Sam, welcome to the podcast. Well, it's good to hear from you, John. And uh, John is a fellow uh, GW college Republican friend of mine. That that's where we met. And, uh, I was attending graduate school at GW, getting my uh, master's degree in political management. I uh, worked in Republican politics. I've been working for about 10 years now in Republican politics. It feels like yesterday. Um, I basically started in Republican politics because I was inspired by Governor Susanna Martinez when she decided uh, to run for office. And I decided to register as a Republican to support her in the primary. And, uh, after she won, I was extremely happy and decided to get involved with Republican politics. So I went to my first county party Christmas dinner, and it just snowballed from there. Worked on Governor Martinez's re-election campaign. I worked on Senator McCain's um, re-election campaign in Arizona. And I worked you know, in various campaigns all throughout the country in states like Montana and Louisiana, um, I went back to Arizona to help Martha McSally uh, through Paul Ryan's, or well, not Paul Ryan's, but House Leadership's PAC, um, Congressional Leadership Fund. And uh, then I went to Washington to get my degree, worked in Larry Hogan's reelection campaign, and I still uh, am doing lots of stuff in Republican politics. I, I serve on the Baltimore County Central Committee, and I am the vice chair of the Baltimore area young Republicans. So Sam, just to just to begin and, and hitting on your your campaign experience really quickly, one of the things I know you and I have talked about sort of off the air is rural campaigns. A lot of the things that, that you've been involved in, a lot of the counties that you've worked in have been in areas that the Republican Party typically does pretty well in areas where, dare I say, that some fringier parts of the Republican Party have thrived. And I'd just love to hear about your experience in those areas and what you think works, what doesn't work, what sort of insights you can provide, misunderstandings you can mis uh, dispel. Oh, sure. Well, I think uh, referring to them as kind of fringy is uh, kind of a misnomer. I think they, I think rural people get a bad rap by a lot of folks who misread some of the uh, poli the political movements uh, going on there. I think uh, 
a lot of these folks are just kind-hearted, good people who uh, look to what society used to be like in small towns where people used to help each other out get together and be less isolated from one each other one another and a lot of people in these small towns in these rural areas they want to return to that they want someone who can serve them and wants to serve their interests and uh, return them to just leave them alone but return them to a time period where people and neighbors could get together and be together and work together and appealing to that is just reminding them of uh how things used to be and how what the Republican Party stands for, that we stand for, you know, family values, that we stand for a sense of service. Like when I was working on Senator McCain's campaign, um, I was, you know, helping out in Yavapai County. Yavapai County is very rural um, and it's very conservative and has a very high voter turnout. It's actually one of the highest turnout um, rural counties in the country. And uh, many of us, I mean, many people didn't expect McCain to win that county in the primary. Uh, when I went out there, I worked really, really hard, and we ended up winning it by about 2,000 votes. And the reason I was able to do that is I reminded them that Senator McCain, you know, served his country, that he, you know, worked very hard for communities like Prescott and like Cottonwood and like um, Jerome. And I reminded them that you know, he always fought for their interests. I think what people don't understand about rural communities is that there's always a sense of loyalty, value, community, and service that is very important to the core of rural life. I myself grew up in a rural area. It wasn't a Republican rural area. It was a Democratic one. Uh, but I understand the feelings that many of these rural folks have that our way of life is disappearing and is falling out of fashion, and we want to preserve it. Talk to us a little bit, Sam, about um, sort of the differences between working on a rural campaign and uh, working for, say, uh, Larry Hogan's re-election. What's it like sort of working um, in, in a state, both states where the Republican Party has uh, succeeded at different levels, Arizona generally statewide, um, and uh with Larry Hogan in the governor's mansion. Talk to us a bit about what were the differences between uh, those two campaigns? Oh, there were major differences. One, um, when I worked for Larry Hogan's campaign, I worked in a very urban area. Um, I worked in the Washington, D.C. suburbs, which is very different than rural Arizona. And there's a huge contrast just by ways of life. You know, people in the D.C. suburbs tend to be more affluent. Um, they tend to be more secluded and uh, you know it's uh they tend to focus more on different aspects of life and they there's just a huge disparity in both wealth and access that both of these communities have but a lot of these communities also have a lot more in common than people think um they both are pretty hard working they just value different um different things in life in terms of they value education differently. They prioritize things differently. And I, I think that's what makes up a lot of the core differences in communities. And when it comes to the major difference in terms of actual campaigning is that when you're campaigning in rural areas, you're going to, you know, run into the problem where houses are much further apart. 
Um, people tend to know each other, so they're going to know that you're not from the area. Um, and people are a lot more open in rural areas to actually speaking with you um, than they are in urban areas because they're more used to a small town type of feel. They're more, you know, down to earth in the sense that they're more open because they've been used to living in uh, rural areas where they're not as reliant on the state. So Sam, just to sort of piggyback off of that, you're now involved with the the Baltimore County Young Republicans and Baltimore obviously is a, a, a deep, deep blue city. Republicans historic, or at least in recent history, have not done super well there electorally. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to hear about some of the things that you're talking about with Baltimore County young Republicans in an effort to grow the Republican Party there, because I know that a lot of the work you're doing there is probably very much in line with our mission here at Gen Z, which is to grow the party among groups that haven't necessarily performed super well for Republicans. And whether that be communities of color or young people etc, etc. So I think, you know, could you provide us with some insight on some of the work that you're doing, some of the messages that you're trying to extend there in your work as it's it's county young Republicans chair, is it? Yes, vice chair. I'm a I'm the Baltimore area young Republicans vice chair. And it's called Baltimore area for a reason, because it's also it's the city and the county. And this actually piggybacks off the earlier conversation, because Baltimore, the Baltimore area is very diverse, not only in its people, but in its uh, the type of areas that that are inside it. Baltimore County is very rural, and it's also very industrial. Where I live, it's basically incredibly industrial. It's an old steelwork, you know, steel mill town called Sparrows Point, and then just right outside of it is acres and acres and acres of farmland. So. And then, you know, on the other side, just 10 minutes in, you're in the city. So you have to balance a lot of things when you're trying to develop messages that reach these drastically different styles of life. Communities of color, you know, Rust Belt type communities and rural farm communities. It's all within Baltimore County and Baltimore City borders. And... This is why you often see why Baltimore County tends to be more purpley and Baltimore City is very democratic. And the the racial elements and the history of the racial elements that separates both the county and city are a bit of a sore point that people who are trying to communicate a message to both have to be aware of. And communicating that the Republican Party, who uh, has historically had mixed reputations amongst this area... Um, communicating that we can provide a a sense of life and a sense of governance that can relate to all of these groups is difficult. And some of the best things that I can give, some of the best advice I can give to showing up to some of these more democratic communities, especially in the city, especially ones of color, is to show up, go there, go into these communities and show you care. And don't just show up once, you know, it's easy to show up once. It's easy to go there and do a cleanup as some Republicans have done or go there and, you know, do one charitable thing. 
that doesn't really show dedication to the community. You have to go to their meetings. You have to show and dedicate and show that you pay attention to the city. You show that you pay attention to their politics, show that you can patronize, you know, their businesses, their stores, understand, you know, the churches in their community and show that you are invested. A lot of Republicans haven't been able to dedicate and the time and effort to show that they're invested and that they actually care about these urban communities. Um, there was an organization that was called City GOP that used to do a lot of work on trying to uh, out do outreach to the city for the Republican Party. And unfortunately, I haven't heard much of it in a long time, but we need organizations like that. We need organizations like Gen Z GOP who are working to break down the barriers with the youth and communities of color. And a lot of the communities of color within the city have not felt like the Republican Party has been a viable alternative, mostly because they've never, many people have never even met a Republican in these communities. That's why I tell our members that when we go to the city, especially if, and those who live in the city, that they need to be the best Republicans they can be. So Sam, one of the things that, that Paul Ryan used to say, at least when I would listen to him in interviews, is that he would say something along the lines of, we're born with, with two ears and one mouth. And I think that's something that a lot of Republicans can learn from. And I'm not saying that that sort of strategy of just listening and trying to understand the plight of different groups, different subgroups of voters that don't necessarily treat Republicans super well is going to, you know, flip them for us, right? And we shouldn't treat voters like statistics, right? Mm -hmm. But I do think, and it sounds like you might agree, that half the battle is just showing up. And I, I think it's a real problem that within Republican establishment, within the party as we know it, there's a sense of comfort right now that the coalition that the Republican Party currently has is, quote unquote, good enough, right? right. And that right. we'll worry about things that might break in a different way demographically or whether it breaks along income lines, whatever. There's a sense that we'll worry about that when we need to. And I, that, that, as a young Republican, really worries me because I do see certain writings on the wall about where certain trends are going, and I, I am really worried about that. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, you're absolutely right. Now, there's a, an old quote from Morton Blackwell, who was a Reagan uh, youth director, and it used to go, nothing in politics moves unless pushed. And that's something that us as young people need to remember. We're always waiting for someone to come and change the Republican Party. We're always waiting for some, for Hispanics or African Americans to realize that they have conservative values and to come join the Republican Party. You can't wait for people. You have to go out and meet them where they're at. You have to go out and tell them that, look, you're conservative. Um, Governor Martinez used to always tell this story about how re some rep local Republican Party chairs um, came together and tried to recruit her to run for district attorney. 
And she used to say, oh, I'm not Republican. I'm not, I, I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm Republican. And they kept going back to her, getting coffee with her and trying to convince her to become Republican. And when she actually sat and listened to what being a Republican or a conservative was, she said, I'll be damned. We're Republican. And that's when her and her husband switched parties from the Democrat Party to the Republican Party and started getting involved. And then she eventually became governor of the state. These little conversations are what really changes uh, minds in these areas that are more traditionally democratic. And we can see this in our own lives right now. Like, we need to meet people where they're at. We need to build for the long term. And, you know, speaking of what just happened today, when we are isolating members of our own party, Liz Cheney was just ousted as conference chair. And doing things like that, isolating ourselves from, you know, people who may have differing views on the future of the party, that can have dire consequences to trying to make movements within other organizations. If we can't, if we can't even, you know, get along with ourselves, how are we supposed to, you know, bring new people to the party? Well, I, I couldn't agree more, Sam. And I want to get back to Liz Cheney. Um, as we were talking sort of about growing the party and about expanding to these new communities, um, I think, and I think we're seeing this with Liz Cheney, actually, um, politicians and our elected leaders sort of suffer from they're always just trying to beat the next election, right? They're not right. looking, you know, 20, 30 years into the future like we here at Gen Z GOP are. That's what John said. There, there's a view that, you know, the coalition is good enough. I mean, I don't know about you guys. Um, I'm not satisfied with losing the House and Senate and the White House in four years. And I'm not satisfied with only winning the White House through the Electoral College. Um, I'd love to see in my lifetime another 49 or one, maybe one day 50 state sweep like we uh, saw with Reagan. Um, and so I think what, what young people like us can do is we have the luxury of not having to just think about winning the next election. We can think about the future. Um, for any listeners who don't know, I'm a, an active uh, and faithful Latter-day Saint. So I served a two-year mission for my church. And uh, it reminds me when we'd go out on the street to try to find people to teach our message. As much as we loved when we would meet someone who would immediately bring us to their home and let us give them our full message. A lot of times we didn't have a lot of success, but we, we called it planting seeds. And we said, you know, maybe five years down the ride, down the line, 10 years down the line, they'll meet another missionary and they'll remember the good experiences they had with us. And then maybe they'll be able to teach them. Um, and so sort of, I, I think we need to have a similar philosophy here in the Republican Party, right? Going and hearing these communities um, that aren't traditionally receptive to the Republican Party, it might not produce the immediate results right now, but it's our job to be, like you said, Sam, nothing changes unless it's pushed. We need to be the pushers and we need to be moving to build that future-proof coalition. And, and that starts in getting involved with Republican organizations at the state, local, county level, right? That, that's that pushing, that planting of seeds for, of new ideas is what it really is right. of forging the party into something that's going to be sustainable in the long term. That can't happen if people don't have the resources, 
the initiative, the inspiration to actually go out and, and get connected with these groups. And just to circle back to, to what we saw today, I know of a lot of young Republicans and young conservatives that saw what was going on today in the House Republican Conference where Liz Cheney has ended up being the only Republican politician that's actually paid a price for her reaction to the January 6th insurrection. I think a lot of young Republicans or would-be Republicans are discouraged by that. What kind of message does that send to young people, to young Americans, to Americans as a whole, that the only action that Republicans took following that devastating national world event was to oust someone who was rightfully in opposition to what happened. You're absolutely right, John. Like, I, I think it's, uh, it is sending the wrong message. It's sending the message that if you don't fall in line, you're not welcome. And if Republicans want to get new people into the party and want to, you know, do things that will attract new members to those to our party, we have to be willing to listen to different types of messages and willing to be listening to critics. You know, for a long time, the Republican Party, uh, you know, we can even put this from their perspective. A lot of the populists have said this themselves, right? That the Republican Party for a long time didn't listen to many of the issues that people like in the Rust Belts were saying. Well, we're now losing people in places that would be heavily unexpected. Uh, our One of the hosts here, Mr. Carter, uh, he talked about his faith in the Latter-day Saints. Well, we are losing ground in Utah. Utah has a third conservative party called United Utah that is starting to eat into Republican wins and is putting some you know members at threat because conservatives are looking for an alternative because they didn't like what they saw. I'd just like to point out while we're on the subject of Utah how absolutely nutso it is that we are losing ground in Utah. Go back and look at what Mitt Romney got in 2012 in Utah. I think it was like 75% of the vote. Right. Um, Latter-day Saints have been some of the most reliable Republicans for years. And not only are they reliable Republicans, they're usually fairly active Republicans. Latter-day Saints are pretty good at organizing. Mm -hmm. um, and I know have been influential to winning in Republican races out in the West. Um, it's baffling to me that we are losing them as a constituency. That's right. And it's it, it's crazy. Like, I, I never thought I never thought I'd see the day where Latter-day Saints um would be starting to lose numbers in the Republican Party because so many of their values line up with conservative ones. And when we start, you know, bending our principles, principles that, you know, members of the Latter-day Saints or many other people uh, find admirable about the Republican Party, we're going to lose people. And one of the, the most conservative principles, as Liz Cheney said, is telling the truth no matter how bad it is. And no matter if it hurts our feelings, we were the party that called out our own when Nixon was violating the law. We impeached him. You know, we went to him. Barry Goldwater and the senators went to him and said, you're done. That's what people really respected about the Republican Party. And the fact that we can't do it now and the fact that we actually punish people for trying to do the right thing. 
that's sending a lot of bad messages to people who may want to become a part of the party. That's what attracted me to the Republican Party back in high school um, was I felt I, I grew up in uh, Washington State. And so a lot of my friends are very liberal, loving to pieces, uh, great guys. But one thing that sort of um, bothered me was sometimes it feels like Democrats and liberals are almost living in a fantasy land. Like, um, sure, it would be great if everyone could get all of this free stuff. Right. Um, but we have to deal with the reality that we currently live in. And I always felt like the Republicans, we were the adults in the room. We are the ones actually trying to navigate this complicated world. Um, but Sam, it's like you were talking about with Liz Cheney. We say, oh, we're, it, it would already be bad if we were expelling someone or punishing someone in the party for having a dissenting view. Let's keep in mind what she has a dissenting view about. She's telling the plain truth that the election in 2020 was not stolen. And I know some say, well, you know, it's not that she's telling the truth, that, that is that she won't move on from it. Um, so long as former President Trump can't move on from it and keeps bringing it up, there will always be room for truth to you. Um, and, and we, I wish we went back to what I loved about the Republican Party, which is we were the ones who dealt with the world, who knew the truth, facts don't care about your feelings, right? And, and got things done. There does seem to be, though, Carter, a prevailing view among Republicans, whether it be Republican voters or Republican members of Congress, that no matter how bad January 6th was, and I guess this is sort of the value judgment, the, the either or binary choice that people are making it out to be, that January 6th was bad, but you know what's worse? It's the Biden administration's policies. It's you know the threat of things like inflation, the, th uh, the threat of skyrocketing debt and deficits. Um, a border crisis, unrest in the Middle East. And there's this sort of flight 93 mentality that no matter how bad shit's going to get in the Republican side, it'll always be worse if Democrats have power and Democrats enact their policy, you know, vision in the short term. And, and that's sort of the, the thing that we're up against. And I, I understand that, right? But at the end of the day, and maybe this is just my bubbled, privileged view, I feel like we can toe the line. We can both oppose bad liberal policies and combat them with common sense conservative policies, but at the same time, you know, dispel all the crap that's coming out of insurrectionists and apologists for people lying about the election. Uh, or maybe I'm just naive. I don't know. Well, I would say that one of the biggest issues that we are going to have to face is the fact that we can't simply move on from January 6th. It is embedded in our politics because no one paid a price for January 6th except Liz Cheney. Like you said, that's what you said earlier, John, and I fully agreed with it. No one in the Republican Party paid any significant price besides Liz Cheney, any political price. No one was held accountable. Nobody really, the party didn't really apologize. And it's going to be hard to move on from that. Yes, we, we moved from Watergate to the Reagan revolution in four years, but 
part of the reason we were able to do that is because we were able to clean cut from Nixon to say that, you know, we're no longer that party. We're no longer going to tolerate people like that. And what happened is, is with Donald Trump, we are so nervous about upsetting the his voter base that we don't want to even condemn anything, anything that he does. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, you, you say, Sam, that um, we can't just move on from January 6th. I actually disagree a little. We can move on or just move on from January 6th because it's actually not that hard to. Every Republican just needs to say the truth. The election wasn't stolen. And really, I think we talk about no one paying a political price, right? I don't even know if anyone needs to pay a political price except for Donald Trump. And the only political price he needs to pay is that he doesn't get to be calling the shots in this party anymore. Um, and, and I know I, I know that people like parts of, of the Trump agenda, right? And, and his agenda was effective enough that he now has uh, people in Congress that are fighting for that agenda. That's their fight now. Um, and, and those are the people we should be looking to, to bring that ideological diversity to, to our party. But Donald Trump himself has forfeited the right to, to be a leader in this party. Um, and, and I think if we as Republicans can own up to that, then we can move on from that terrible, terrible day, right? I don't need people dressing themselves in sackcloth and ashes, right? Every day atoning for the sins of January 6th, right? Like, no, we can move on. We can focus on stopping the poor policies of the Biden administration. But we need to tell the truth and we need to move past the Trump era. I I understand where you're coming from. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, I mean, what I mean, pay a political price. What I mean is basically we we need to at least say that what happened was bad and that it should never happen again and admit that, you know, it was partly to do with the fact that President Trump called on these people to come to the Capitol. Like we need to agree with the basic facts on the ground. And unfortunately that's very hard for people to do. I still see people saying that some of the protesters were hidden Antifa, you know, people, or that, you know, that January 6th wasn't that bad or that the people didn't die because of January 6th. There was a heart attack or whatever. I, I still see these conspiracy theories on my feed every single day. I mean, it, you could say that, you know, the rest of the Republican party wants to move on, but that's just not true. Like I, I can see it on the grassroots level. These aren't ordinary people that are sharing this stuff. It's Republican party activists from all over the country that I've had on my friends list for years. This is, you know, deep within the party. The people believe this. And the fact that our party leaders won't come out and say, look, what is being said is not true. We can't move on. I mean, we're having, we're spending, you know, we're supposed to be the party of fiscal conservatism and we're spending taxpayer dollars on audits we know are not going to reveal what people say they're going to reveal. We're spending money on lawyers trying to, you know, look into lawsuits and, and fight these illegal battles. We're expending so much time and money on something we know isn't true. Yeah. And, and not to mention, Sam, that's actually a really good point, actually. I, I, I never even I, I guess I intuitively thought of it like this. But but now that you mention it, there really is an opportunity cost, if you will, to 
just going down these rabbit holes of stop the steal, the election was fraudulent, et cetera, et cetera. And when we spend money on these audits and and all the bull crap, we forego spending money on actual candidates in actually competitive races that Republicans have the opportunity to flip. And I think a perfect example of this, and I, I hope this doesn't end up being the case, but in Virginia over the weekend, there was a convention, right? And the Republican Party of Virginia has sort of garnered a reputation as being sort of incompetent, a little crazy, not always doing what's in the best interests, uh, you know, in terms of nominating candidates that can win elections. And over the weekend, we saw the Republican Party of Virginia nominate a guy in Glenn Youngkin, who is a, a common sense. He's he's a conservative guy. He's a he's a business guy, sort of a political outsider, and he has an opportunity to flip the governor's mansion in Virginia. And I think I, I heard a stat that eleven of the last twelve gubernatorial elections in Virginia have gone to the opposite party that's in the White House. Mm -hmm. And with the exception being Terry McAuliffe in 2013, winning when President Obama was in office. And I really hope that people like Glenn Youngkin, who have a legitimate shot at winning, who are good candidates, serious candidates, they're not relitigating an election that happened over six months ago. I, I'm just worried about people like him not getting the time and attention that they deserve to win their elections. One thing that the party needs to really refocus on is hyper-local politics. Almost everything in that Virginia Republican primary focused on Trump. In New Jersey, we have two of the candidates talking about how one was never Trump and I'm pro-Trump. And it's like, you're going to be the governor of, Virgi of Virginia or New Jersey. You have nothing to do with Trump. Trump has, should have nothing to do. He doesn't live in Virginia or New Jersey. Like, what does this have to do with actually solving people's problems? People want to know what you're going to do for them locally. And that's how, you know, people like Charlie Baker and, you know, Larry Hogan win. They win because they focused on issues that are in their backyard. They focused on issues that the citizens of their state have to deal with every day. But the problem with having this, you know, external civil war battle happening in our party is that we're forced to deal with how Trumpy are you in every primary. We're forced to talk about it. We're forced to talk about him. And it nationalizes every election. And if blue states like Virginia are ever going to elect a Republican governor again, or blue states like New Jersey, like we're going to have to retool ourselves to focus on actual conservative values in Republican politics. It, it really is the perfect storm of being chronically uncompetitive, don't you think? Where we have these politicians, these political activists that have sowed such distrust in the 2020 election and have misled people and lied to people that Joe Biden is somehow an illegitimate, illegitimate president to the point where voters are so genuinely concerned if 
even if it's totally misguided or, or, you know, they've been misled. And at the same time, as Republicans fight this battle, swing voters or suburban voters that were typically Republicans, they are simultaneously turned off. So we, we further entrench ourselves in these blue states, in these light blue states, in these potentially competitive races. We just entrench ourselves in this this cloak of being uncompetitive, and it just pisses me off. Well, I think it's bizarre, too, that we see this thing as as states become more blue, um, often, and, and I think this might happen in reverse with the Democrats. I, I have no idea. I don't pay that much attention. Um, as states become more blue and less competitive for Republicans, you would think that Republicans would change their strategy, right? Moderate, um, like Sam said, hyper-localize, right, to win races. But that's not what happens. The parties have started getting fringier and they've started getting more extreme. And it's bizarre. And I think it, we have this weird sort of cultural sickness where politics is, it's like the only identity that some people have. And it's where they derive all their meaning and their purpose. And so being in these parties, it's not even about winning or about being able to get at least some conservative policies passed in, say, Washington or Massachusetts or anything like that. It's almost, it's like a club. It's like everyone's LARPing. It's super bizarre. Um, and, and and it's like Sam said, we, we, the Republican Party needs to grow. It needs to hyper-localize. It needs to diversify. And we need to be comfortable with the idea that a Republican in Kentucky is going to look different from a Republican in California, is going to look different from a Republican in Utah. Um, and we need all of those voices in our party. Um, I would rather have a, a conservative coalition that only does what I want 60 or 70% of the time than one that would theoretically do what I want 100% of the time, but doesn't have enough votes to get in power. You know, you're absolutely right, Carter. Like, I, I am uh, very worried about the state of blue Republican, blue state Republican parties, because I've seen it myself. Um, I've seen it in Maryland and I've seen it in New Mexico where these people believe that they will always be a minority party and they don't want, they don't have the will or they don't have the even ambition to become a majority party. Their only ambition is to block legislation. They're not for anything. They're only for blocking. And you can't be that if you actually want to win. Um, I saw this happen in my own home state of New Mexico, where I grew up, where we won back the House in 2014 for the first time in 60 years. Now, what did we do when we won back the House? Well, we made everything, we made the trains run on time. We, You know, the meetings in the roundhouse actually met on time for the first time, probably in the history of New Mexico. But you know, the average ordinary person doesn't care about that. We didn't have a real agenda. We didn't really have anything that could pass. We had a Republican governor and we couldn't even get anything to her desk. It was, it was just a bizarre thing. We, we became, you know, we fought so hard to win a majority. And when we finally got it, we fumbled the ball. And 
that's the problem is that if blue state republicans really want voters to vote for them they have to be for something they have to have a vision and it can't just be the governor it has to be all of them we have to work as a team and figure out what the people of our states want and need and need us to provide and you know shape the future and you're right about politics basically becoming a religion i read a piece in the atlantic i can't remember the author right now um it was this uh, liberal muslim gentleman who wrote a very concerned article about how politics is basically becoming religion and the liberals were wrong that the secularization of the united states would lead to more um political moderation and in fact because politics has replaced religion people have become radical about their politics because it is everything that they identify now and basically because parties have been declawed i'm sure any of you have been to a party meeting in recent years it feels like a social club it doesn't feel like a a political organization it doesn't feel like it's very different from going you know to a campaign it feels like a club where you hang out and have fun and talk about how great the president is or how bad the president is and that's that's not any way to build a future and you know, we can't turn Republican Party meetings into fellowship hall. We have to we have to be able to find ways to bring in more people. And we can't bring in more people if all we are doing is focusing on maintaining ourselves and basically turning Republicans, the Republican Party meetings into support groups. So so have less fun is what I'm hearing. <laughs> I, I want no fun. That's a. Not less, John. No. Well, um, I mean, we need to get I, I think especially young people should get more serious about, about politics. I mean, young people, we have a habit of focusing only on the good and exciting parts about politics. But work focusing on the actual hard work is how things change. You, you have, we, we need more people with a long term mindset. Yeah, it, it reminds me when I was in high school, I was in marching band. And uh, the parents that helped me out, out the band, we call them the band boosters. Um, and the, the band boosters who had something else going on in their life, aside from helping out the marching band, right? Like um, if they were religious or happily married or they had kids in other programs as well, right? Those tended to be the best band boosters, fairly chill, um, just wanted to show up, help the band get the job done. It was the boosters who only did the marching band. That was their entire identity. I mean, they and and we sort of see this in politics right is they were there a lot they were involved a lot they did a lot of work um which gave them a lot of power but they were nuts and they were super super emotionally invested in a high school marching band um and and you're right sam it's like a social club anyone who is using the republican party as a social club right now i would highly encourage you to go be a booster for your local marching band, because there you will be able to exert that same fanaticism um, with somewhat uh, more socially productive results. I do believe that you're absolutely right. We need to um, understand a lot of people in politics need to understand, as all of you know, I'm on Twitter way too much. And so is my friend, John here. Uh, We never, (laughs) we, we need to understand that politics is not life. There's more to life than politics. When we get too wrapped up in politics, we tend to 
um, demonize people who have different views. This is how we got to Liz Cheney. You know, we used to be in the Republican Party, what Reagan used to call a big tent. And we need to restore a big tent. We need to be able to listen, discuss with each other um, the, our differences of opinion so we can figure out how the party can move forward. But we can't do that uh, when, you know, you basically you, you lock out people from leadership if they just have a slightly differing view than the consensus. That's not that's not a big tent. That's a mob. Politics is is not real life and politics is not a personality trait. But being a Red Sox fan is and I know that we just took three out of four from the Orioles, Sam. So <laughs> there's got to be something to be said about that. Huh. Well, it is what it is, right? Being an Orioles fan is uh, it, that is penance in itself. Sometimes it's kind of like being a Republican. You stick around because of loyalty, but good God, they frustrate you sometimes. Yes. Well, I think that just about puts a bow on this episode here. And here's to doing the hard, boring work, because at the risk of sounding cliche and corny, that's the way that things are going to move forward. At the end of the day, we're going to be judged on the scoreboard, not on Twitter. And we need to advance the policies that we support. We need to advance the policies that we believe will make a better future for the lives of our fellow man and our neighbor and as Republicans, we have our set of solutions, and at the end of the day, those only come to realization if we do the hard, boring work. So here's to doing that. And as always, you can follow us at, on Twitter at Gen Z GOP org. Sign up, get involved online, Gen Z GOP dot org, and find us wherever you may find us. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your dog maybe tell your local marching band anyway that's a wrap on this one thanks everybody go orioles